As we think about going back to school, I'm reminded how much harder some subjects seem to be than others, and we have a sort of hard subject before us today. So let us pray that God would illumine our hearts and our minds during this time. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us, we pray. For your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So we turn to you for illumination. Help us to hear your word today, and in our hearing, help us to obey. These prayers we make in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. The New Testament lesson today comes from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I invite you now to listen for the word of the Lord. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a fire is, how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives, or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh water. And today's psalm requires a little bit of a preamble. At the beginning of this series we've been doing this summer on the book of Psalms, I told you we would not just stick with the greatest hits, but would try to explore a wide range of psalms. Today we venture into one of the darker corners of the Psalter and consider the message of Psalm 58, one of the so-called imprecatory psalms or cursing psalms. It's a psalm of vengeance, and I have to warn you, some of the language within it is pretty intense and graphic. After I read it, you may find yourself searching in your Bibles just to double-check that this is actually in there. 
Psalm 58, like many of the cursing psalms, does not appear in the Sunday cycle of the Revised Common Lectionary. In fact, it's right in the middle of a section of psalms that is sparsely represented by the, in the lectionary. So while it would be e easy to avoid psalms like this if we simply suck to the script, it seems disingenuous not to address this genre of psalms in a sermon series on the Psalter especially because the vengeance psalms are actually quite well represented throughout the book of Psalms. I studied this psalm along with other texts that the lectionary avoids while I was completing my doctorate studies last year. And I asked a group of members that I was working with at my former church to consider with me if these sorts of texts are worth preaching, or if, as the lectionary allows, they should simply be avoided. The general consensus, though not unanimous, was that from time to time it is worth preaching these kinds of texts. So you may decide for yourself today whether or not you think this text is ever worth preaching again. Violent and troubling texts like these are low-hanging fruits and easy targets for those who wish to criticize Christianity or the Bible. Outspoken atheists make no hesitation in bringing psalms like this up as reasons to reject our faith. So it does us little good, I think, to avoid these texts, whether from embarrassment or confusion or preference for the New Testament. It's better to deal with them honestly and as best we can, lest they someday take us by surprise in another context. And after all, since they are indeed Holy Scripture... Even now, God might speak to us if we give God our listening ears. So with that introduction, let us listen once again for the word of God as it comes to us from Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge people fairly? No. In your hearts, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked go astray from the womb. They err from their birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of the charmer or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. Like grass, let them be trodden down and wither. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the untimely birth that never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when they see vengeance done. They will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. People will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever said something that you came to regret? Maybe you said it, maybe you realized that you regretted it as the words were coming out of your mouth. Or maybe only later after you calmed down that you realized you shouldn't have said that thing that you said. 
Maybe you wrote an aggressive email without thinking or made more public a private dispute. Maybe you showed a general lack of understanding towards someone, not realizing that the person is struggling with some tragedy in their life. We've all been there. We've all done that. We've all said things we regret. And as we read Psalm 58, we might wonder if this psalmist ever came to regret his words. I mean, after all, he takes some pretty low blows here, doesn't he? We certainly can't say he took the high road. He calls on God to violently destroy his enemies and evokes grotesque images of how to do it. As C.S. Lewis put it, vengeance psalms show resentment expressing itself with perfect freedom. When I was a child, I was taught the axiom that I'm sure many of you were taught and have taught your children. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? But this psalmist isn't practicing this principle. He can't think of anything nice and, in fact, seems to be praying everything he can think of that might be hurtful, no matter how blasé. We have the expression in English, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But it seems like this psalmist would. To make matters even more confusing, the New Testament certainly doesn't condone this kind of rampage, right? James has no time for it, as we've just heard. Jesus' turn-the-other-cheek ethic rejects the very impetus for vengeance. Paul urges Christians not to allow careless words to come out of their mouths, but only that which is useful for building others up. Even elsewhere in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes says that the words spoken by the wise are gracious, but the words of fools end in wicked madness. It's not a stretch to characterize this psalmist's words as wicked madness. So where do we find ourselves? On the one hand, we have trouble understanding why this text is in the Bible at all. And yet on the other hand, if we're honest with ourselves, we may actually be able to relate to the harsh and callous words of this psalmist's prayer. We may have even said similarly malicious things ourselves, whether to God or to or about someone else. And so we have a tenuous relationship with this text, right? We may reject it upon an initial surface-level reading, but we may recognize ourselves in it upon a deeper, honest, self-reflective reading. Sometimes we read texts in the Bible and we think the Bible should be above this kind of talk, right? This is holy scripture, after all. And although we may struggle with this sort of thing, surely the word of God should transcend it. Surely the holy writers through whom God speaks should be on a higher plane of holiness than we are. And yet here it is, cries for vengeance and destruction of the wicked. This is unlike the language we find in the prophet Ezekiel, who says that God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked, but in their turning from their ways. But here we have a demand for the death of the wicked that altogether lacks any hope that the wicked will turn from their ways. Here it is in the very same Bible. 
The book of 2 Timothy assures us that all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But we might wonder what sort of training in righteousness this psalm of vengeance offers us. But if we seek, perhaps we will find. A few years ago, a man came to talk with me because he felt like he was losing control of his emotions. He was really angry with a friend, angrier than he'd ever been. And the man was a devout Christian and aspired to be the kind of person who rose above his anger rather than allowing himself to be consumed by it. But his mind ruminated on his rage. The man felt ashamed of it all and was sure that God was ashamed of him too. He believed God wanted him to turn the other cheek, accept what had happened with his friend, and move on. And until he got to that place, he didn't feel like he could pray or even come to church. But he couldn't seem to get there, and so he had become a person bottled up, ready to explode. The man needed to work through his emotions, of course, and I referred him to a therapist for that. But as for his spiritual life, the man needed to stop hiding from God and entrust himself to God's grace. You see, we can't wait until we don't need God's grace to approach God because we'll never get there ourselves. As Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a physician but the sick. In any marriage, excessive anger is certainly concerning, but even worse than anger is indifference. When one spouse completely ignores the other, what marriage counselors call stonewalling. The same is true in our relationship with God. Being angry may not be where we want to be in our faith, but disengaging with God until we find ourselves acceptable is far worse. It's easy and dangerous to project our own self-displeasure onto God and assume that if we're dissatisfied with ourselves, then God might not be up for dealing with us either. But hiding from God, of course, is useless. After all, before a word is on our tongue, no matter how ugly that word, the Lord knows it completely. God searches our hearts and our minds, so whether we like it or not, whether we like what we're feeling or not, God sees us and God knows us. And so we must trust that no matter how ugly we think our feelings are, God will be a God of grace, and God will love and nurture us into new life. I have a friend who seems to wish that I were never upset about anything. Sometimes while we catch up on FaceTime, I try to share something difficult going on in my life, something I'm upset about or something perhaps even that I'm angry about. And rather than be a good listener and sigh and nod along the way, he's quick to jump in and say, Brian, you need to give that to God. And to be honest, it's a really irritating response. I mean, really? You're going to throw a let go and let God at me before I haven't even gotten to the best part yet? My friend just doesn't want to deal with me when I'm upset and angry. But friends, God does. 
God does want to deal with us even when we are upset and angry. Surely that's the testimony of Psalm 58. Maybe what the psalmist is doing here is letting go and letting God. By giving voice to what he's really feeling, however awful and dreadful it may be, the psalmist is allowing himself to be known by his creator for better or worse. It may not always be the safe thing to do with other humans, but it's always a safe thing to do with God. I don't think we humans have a more fundamental need than our need to be known. And yet it's vulnerable and sometimes painful to open ourselves up to being seen as we really are. We may mope around in a bad mood once in a while, but when people ask us, are you okay? We're quick to say, I'm fine. When tears well up in our eyes, we turn away not wanting to be seen. When anger churns inside us, we retreat to our bedroom and punch a pillow knowing that such wrath is not fitting for the public eye. So we live in this constant tension between our deep desire to be known and our hesitancy to allow ourselves to be seen for who we really are, warts and all. A hesitancy born out of our fear that when people see us openly and honestly, they will reject us. Now the solution, of course, is not to abandon all self-restraint and act on every emotion we feel. Surely this psalm is not an endorsement of the kind of vengeance the psalmist calls for. Nor is the solution to descend into stoicism, refusing to deal with the emotions we feel and carry with us. Somewhere in the midst of that all-or-nothing dichotomy lies our prayer life, in which we approach God longing to be known and loved and transformed all at the same time. God wants to bring us into new life, new life free of any desire for vengeance. But here's the point. We cannot be transformed without first being known. We cannot become who God has made us to be in Christ until we give ourselves to God right where we are. We simply must entrust ourselves to God's grace, which, my friends, is always always enough. The great thing about God, among many great things about God, is that God always remains in complete control. There's no way for us to catch God in a weak moment and actually convince God to smite our enemies. We won't be able to talk God into enacting violence on our foes. God will be who God will be, quite apart from whomever we demand God be in any weak moment. Like a child kicking sand into the sea, thinking she can stop the waves from crashing, our anger at God does not run the risk of changing the course of history. But it does make it possible for us to be honest about where we are in our lives, and from there step into a future open to transformation. This is not about just getting our anger out so we can move on. After all, anger is not something we can free ourselves from just by getting it out. Catharsis does not have a meaningful track record as a means of dealing with anger. We can't just punch a wall and be done with it. No, our anger will come back. We have to work through our emotions. We can't just magically release them. 
though that sure would be nice. So this psalm is less about releasing our emotions and more about allowing ourselves to be known by God. The psalm demonstrates God can handle our deepest and ugliest parts of us. God already knows what we're thinking and feeling anyway, so we might as well bring the full breadth of ourselves into the orbit of God's grace. It can sometimes feel scary, but there's nothing more healing than being received right where we are. There's nothing more healing than grace. And grace is not passive, but active. Cheap grace is passive, sure, but God's grace is consequential and impactful. Being known by God brings transformation because God doesn't just leave us in the miry bog. God gives us the Holy Spirit who transforms us into the image of Christ, starting from right where we are. So we may still struggle with the images and the language that the psalmist uses to express the reality of his anger and fear in this psalm. I get it. We may wish he would have kept it between himself and God instead of airing his dirty laundry out for all of us to read today. And we may not share the weight of his anger toward any one particular person. But surely we can at least relate to the ultimate plea of the psalmist that we find in the last verse. The author wants people to be able to say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Isn't this the heart of the matter? Isn't this the source of so much angst and perhaps even of so much anger? In the end, we all want to be able to say with full conviction that doing the right thing will pay off. That God will take care of all that's wrong in the world around us and set the record straight. We all desire for the good to prevail, for righteousness to bear fruit. It's what motivates us. It's what constrains us. It's what keeps us moving in the right direction. And whenever it doesn't seem to prevail, whenever the right doesn't seem to prevail, whenever we don't see a reward for the righteous, there is surely a part of us that wants to take it up with God, right? We ask, we want to ask with the other psalmists, the question that's surely at the heart of Psalm 58, O Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? That's not just a sad question. That's an angry question. And this psalm invites that sort of honest prayer. The psalm insists that our anger like our sorrow and joy in our other emotions, should be prayed about and handed over to God. So my prayer this morning is that we might feel this invitation to bring our genuine selves before God. And may we know the blessing that comes from being known by God and being the recipient of grace. And ultimately, may we experience the freedom that comes when God's Spirit transforms us more and more every day into the image of Christ. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen.